This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Monument Grills and their Denali 605 Pro Smart Propane Gas Grill. Featuring six main burners and an infrared side burner, the Denali Grill solves a lot of backyard barbecue complaints before they start. There's no waiting for the grill to heat up because the Denali heats to 700 degrees Fahrenheit in just 10 minutes. And you don't have to worry about uneven heat because the Denali features patented Blaze Zone technology for consistent temperatures across the whole grill. It also has a clear viewing lid, so you don't have to keep opening and shutting it. And Bluetooth app control for cooking without interrupting your conversation. The Denali 605 Pro is not just a grill, it's an experience. A juicy, delicious, perfectly seared, medium-rare experience. Upgrade your backyard game with the Denali 605 Pro at monumentgrills.com. And don't miss out on $45 off with the code OUTSIDE45. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. Okay, Patty. Yeah. Um, I, I have an idea. I know how we should start this one off. Okay, you're the boss. What are we doing? I think you should tell me that first date story that you're saying is so good. I'm guessing it's funny. Uh, and I also think it will set you up nicely to be the, the guide for the rest of these stories we're going to tell today about love. And, you know, it, it's going to make listeners trust you. So um, can we do it that way? Yeah, cool. I'm totally happy to do that. But, like, Mike, buddy... This is like a rom com like adorable, lovey story. Can you like ask me a little better? <laughs> <sighs> hey, Patty, mm-hmm. would you would you tell us that adorable story about how you met your soon-to-be wife? Oh my gosh, Mike, you softy. Mm. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> okay, sorry, I had to. Mm. It's two years ago. It's the height of the COVID panic days, right? And even though Carly and I live in this extra small mountain town and have 95 bajillion friends in common, we connect over Hinge. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Hey, I'm a millennial. What do you want me to do? Okay, so we decide that our first date should be a socially distanced dog walk, right? Mm. It's kind of awkward at first because we're trying to stay like six feet apart and we're kind of nervous, but then we just like drift in and kind of melt into this like amazing conversation about our mountain experiences, about like how we want to have a family and want to set up roots and like marriage and all this great stuff. And all of a sudden, like, you know, this short little walk turns into like miles and miles and hours and hours. So it's getting dark. I walk Carly home after this wonderful first date. And what do I do after an epic first date, Mike? Mm -hmm. I wave goodbye from six feet away. Oh, that is brutal. (laughs) Yes, it was very brutal. I thought I totally blew it. But I did it again at the end of our second date as well. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, I mean, what do you want me to do? It's my first pandemic. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, me too. I was very scared. So I somehow get a third date, and it's a picnic down by the river, right? And we kind of throw our COVID caution to the wind, and we're enjoying each other's company, and the sun is setting, and smoochies! We totally have a makeout for, like, hours and hours, and, you know, like, so long that I actually have to use the light on my cell phone to, like, illuminate our path back to the trailhead. And we're holding hands, and we're walking, and this is where I turn into a nervous horse's ass. 
even though we've just been like, you know, tongue punching each other's molars for the last like two and a half hours or something, I can't stop thinking about our hands touching and my need to like douse myself in hand sanitizer. <laughs> oh my, that, that is, that is terrible. Cause that, it just makes no sense. I'm an idiot. I don't know what to say, but I'm an idiot, but like a year after that, I actually proposed to Carly at the same spot on the river. Uh, she says yes, and now we're getting married. Ta-da! See? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's a nice story. Yeah. Um, and now you get to introduce us to some other people with uh, wilder tales of falling in love outdoors and why they think there might be something about being out there that made it happen. I'm psyched about this one. I'm going to start with Katie. He's a great cook, and he's he's from South Africa, uh-huh. so I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, South African cuisine, but they really love a good braai, which is a like a barbecue. So oftentimes, especially in summer, his beard has this great braai smell to it, and I really, really appreciate that. So it, his beard <laughs> smells like barbecue? Yeah. <laughs> That's the best. It's like, what is that, Mike? Oh, that's bacon. That's a cut of meat. <laughs> I've been slow cooking it for 12 hours. <laughs> that is Katie Baker talking about her shiny bow hunk, Mike. In addition to maintaining his glorious beard, Mike runs ultra marathons, and so does Katie. And their shared love of running unreasonable distances is how they met. In 2019, Katie was in the midst of a personal renaissance. She quit her job in New Zealand, sold her home, and used her savings to travel open-endedly. That September, she was in Gressonay saint Jean, a very small town in northern Italy, for the Ultra Tour de Monterosa 100K race. But on the morning of the run, snow was stacking up on the course, threatening to cancel it. Katie, along with all the other runners who were staying in the same hotel, waited together for word on the race. I got talking with a bunch of people. There were some ladies from America. There was a guy called Charlie who lived in Chamonix, France. And there was Mike. Mike probably stood out to me because he was kind of quietly spoken. But when he did have something to say, he was kind of a person that you'd listen to because what he had to say was interesting and valuable and, you know, thoughtful. Basically, all of us had traveled to Italy specifically for this race. And, you know, it's 100K, so a lot of training had gone into it. We were all really keen to be out there running. We got the email confirming that the race was not happening. So that was um, when Plan B was created. Charlie suggested that Katie, Mike, and Dana, one of the gals from the States, all head to his home in Chamonix. They'd spend the night there, wake up early the next morning, drive 30 minutes to Cormayeur, Italy, and run the roughly 60 miles back to Chamonix. Everyone was game. So it was dark when we started. We all had our headlamps on. And I remember as we did the big climb out of Cormayeur, like the sun came up and it was just so beautiful. And I think we all shared this sense of like, oh man, like what a cool opportunity to have to be with other people of a kind of similar adventurous mindset and to be in this incredibly beautiful place and this is going to be a good day. The run took about 21 hours in total. Which was, it's a lot of hours, but it was a pretty leisurely day as well, if I can put it that way. That is a hilarious statement to say, by the way. (laughs) 
yeah, yeah. I covered a hundred hundred kilometers on my feet, but it was you know we're just taking it easy. <laughs> Their route, which included some eighteen thousand vertical feet of climbing, was in fact quite brutal. Sure, the mountaintop restaurants serving delicious sandwiches and cappuccinos helped. But Katie says it was Mike that made the day enjoyable. There are a few things that I noticed about Mike during the day that I was like, oh, this guy's pretty special. I've got my poles and I'm puffing away and I'd be kind of generally um, around the back of the pack. And Mike would spend some time back there chatting with me, uh -huh. checking in with me, seeing how I'm doing. And I was so impressed that he could have the mental resources to give them to other people. Mm. And I thought, this guy is really generous. When we're done, I guess, around maybe 90 kilometers, and we weren't exactly sure where we went at this point. So I've like, I've got my phone out and I'm looking at my All Trails app. I've, I've found my blue dot, like I'm pretty confident uh -huh. about where we should go. So I'm kind of like, all right, guys, you know, <laughs> it's, it's up this way, up the hill. A little while later, Mike was, he was very diplomatic. And he said to me, you know, I'm not sure if we should be going like up the hill at this point. Um, would it be okay if I had another look at your map and just just double check on that? And no, I had that wrong. Like I was taking us in the wrong direction at <laughs> 11 o'clock at night or midnight. We've been out all day and I'm leading everyone up a hill in the wrong direction. And like, I think that 90 kilometers in, like people would definitely have been justified in being like a little bit stroppy with me at that point. That's a good way to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> I was just kind of like water off a duck's back, like, oh, yep, yeah, all good. You know, we're going the right direction now, so that's all that matters. Yeah. I was pretty impressed that he was clearly a pretty patient person. <laughs> patient and supportive. Katie had been tracking their distance during the run, and when they arrived at Charlie's apartment in Chamonix, her watch read 98.5 kilometers. So, absurd as it was, Katie started running up and down the road until she passed the 100k mark. Rather than go inside, gorge on food, and pass out, Mike stayed with Katie and cheered her on. So, of course, Katie asked him out on the ultimate ultra runner first date ever. I said to Mike, like, did he want to come out to Slovenia with me and do some trail running there? Because I was just tra I was just traveling at the time. I didn't really have any plans and. You know, I thought this had been so much fun. <laughs> so what was his response to that? Like, as you're running, like, up and down the road, like, hey, I was just wondering, maybe you'd like to go to Slovenia with me. So Mike, um, he had a job. <laughs> it's, it's, like, so inconvenient. But um, he was working remotely while he was there in Europe. Right. So he, he said, no, he couldn't do that because he had to work. And I was like, oh, yeah, all good. It's a shame, but, you know, all good. But the next day, we all stuck around Chamonix. You know, we we're all tired, but super stoked with what we'd achieved the day before. So uh -huh. we all went out for breakfast together and lunch and dinner and things. And because Mike and I are introverted people, sometimes a little bit of social lubrication in, in the way of alcohol. 
can can kind of you know help to um, to push a relationship along, if I can put it that way. Let me and, translate um, this for the listeners <laughs> at home. You guys had some wine, and then all of a sudden, you guys started making out hard. Correct? Am I correct? That that, that is correct, prosecutor. We were making out hard <laughs> in in the middle of a bar in Chamonix. It was it was That's great. It, I felt eighteen again. It was. <laughs> it was it was so fun. <laughs> Mike couldn't make it to Slovenia, but he joined Katie and the Dolomites a few days later. And even though Katie didn't think that any kind of long-term relationship would materialize with Mike since he lived in South Africa and she lived out of a suitcase at that point, well, things happened. That first night in the Dolomites, Mike said to me, you know, you don't have a plan, so make a plan with me and um, ask me if I'd come out to South Africa. And I was like, hmm, you know, <laughs> seems a bit, <laughs> that seems like a bit of a jump, I guess. I wasn't sure um, if that made sense because we had known each other such a short time, but I think I spent another day or two in Mike's company and I was like, yes, this makes total sense. I'm, I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to move in with Mike and I'm going to live in South Africa for a while. That is wild. <laughs> I mean, it must have been a really great stay at the Dolomites. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a beautiful part of the country. <laughs> Five weeks after meeting, Katie and Mike were living together in South Africa. And then Mike went with Katie back home to New Zealand for Christmas, where he met her family and paced her for her first ever 100-mile ultra-marathon. Then the pandemic hit, and they figured out extending work visas and remote work, and how many laps around the backyard would make up a sufficient run. Today, Mike and Katie's nomadic love affair has them in Canada, where Mike got a job and Katie was granted a visa after proving the validity of their relationship to the Canadian government through shared Airbnb receipts and, get this, screenshots of their Strava accounts showing their joint runs. While all this might seem both insanely romantic and completely bonkers, Katie says that that first group run they did together in Chamonix opened up possibilities that don't exist when you meet someone in a club. Running 100Ks kind of breaks you down, or it does for me anyway. You can't fake your personality <laughs> when you're 95Ks into a run. Like if you're, you know, you are who you are. And when you see someone when they're at their most tired and hungry and they're in pain, I think there is an element of seeing kind of their core self and you know I wasn't dressed up in my nice clothes and I didn't have makeup on and my hair all pretty like I'm bright red in the face and I'm sweaty and my hair's a mess and that's what I'm like most of the time so <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> there's no point in Mike getting some kind of fake view of you know oh she cleans up real nice well I might do but I don't do that most of the time so you know <laughs> You see the real the real person when you're on those outdoor adventures. Right, yeah, you're like, I wear this running vest like 90% of the time. <laughs> and like these stinky shoes and these stinky socks, like this is my perfume. So I hope that you enjoy it. <laughs> this, is, this is what I smell like. So. <laughs> <laughs> Not all relationships forged in the outdoors start off like adventurous fairy tales. Consider the case of mountaineer Aaron Parisi, Erin has been in the news lately for her attempt to be the first trans woman to climb the highest peak on every continent, the so-called Seven Summits. So far, she stood atop five of them. 
But while Aaron is a whiz at the planning and logistics it takes to execute lofty goals, her romantic talents are, well... That first time we met, you know, where I couldn't even, I couldn't say hi and I just didn't want to. And uh, and it's funny because she, she thought I was like the worst person ever because, you know, I... <laughs> That's always a good start to a relationship story, right? <laughs> so there we were. She thought I was an asshole. And... Right. She thought that I was just being a giant bee. Erin is describing the first of a few pretty brutal early interactions with her wife, Allison. In the fall of 2018, Erin was on mandatory vocal rest after throat surgery. Some friends dragged her out to a bar in Denver to curb her post-surgery blues, and that is when Aaron met Allison. Mm, sort of. Since her doctor said no talking, Aaron could only give a head nod and a little wave, which came off as a lot rude. A few weeks later, though, they ran into one another at a party with the same group of friends. This time, Aaron was armed with a notepad. We sat there for the rest of the night. We just kind of, like, traded notes, and I really didn't think that she was interested in a relationship. I was super committed to climbing and, mm -hmm. you know, I was in that place we all talk about where, you know, you, you don't, you're not in a relationship and you, and you don't even want to be in a relationship. But ultimately, Allison, like, made the first move, right? We met a couple of weeks later after that and then she, um, she, she's like, I Googled you and, and I knew that she had my whole backstory. But I was like, oh, well, all right. She asked me out and I still don't get it. And, um... <laughs> She sends me a, a Facebook message because she doesn't have my phone number. And I had said no a couple days before that I couldn't hang out with the friends and she was going to be there. So she sent me a message a few days later and said, hey, you weren't able to get out the other night. I was wondering if you wanted to go out for dinner. And I said, yeah, sure. Like, And I, I proceeded to invite all my friends. <laughs> I, mean, I just figured that all of the other times we had met, we had met with these big, this, this big crew of people. So like, I was just like, yeah, now I've got a voice so we can all talk. Like, This is going to be so rad. And, um, yeah, I invited, like, three people to our first date. <laughs> when their friends left, Allison very bluntly told Aaron that she was interested. They had a good laugh about the entire thing. And a few more dinner dates and a few more weeks later, Aaron and Allison went on a ski date to Arapahoe Basin, a resort about 60 miles west of Denver. The snow was, um, challenging. I was full on just dirty eyes. <laughs> And nothing was open, so everybody was on the same same shit, right? Everyone's on this like the same dumb slope. But we, you know, we wanted to go skiing together. Right. We started trying to hunt down the powder, and that you know, I was too stubborn to give up on the quest. And uh, I took her down like the farthest run over that we could get to, and it ended up just being like a black diamond that was just a sheet of ice, you know, like twenty feet wide between trees and everything else. And we, we just skid down the whole run on our butts. <laughs> Hoping not to tear her pants open on anything. And she was n not happy with me. And I was just apologizing the whole time. And she's just like, shut up so I can get down this hill. Then we can talk about it. We got to the bottom. And we just called it a day at that point. It was, it was just terrible. But during the car ride home, Aaron said something that made everything better. Just joking. That's when shit really hit the fan. So we were on our way home. And we were going to go to a... Uh, a New Year's party, she said to me, you know, like, we're going to go to our first party, you know, as a couple or as now that we're dating. And I was like, oh, dating. And we hadn't, we just hadn't had the discussion. So I didn't, I just didn't know we were calling it that. So I said, dating, is that what, is that what we're doing? Oh, and no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. 
didn't know we were dating. Like, is that where that, that's what we're calling this? <laughs> I say all the wrong things, I guess. And I, that's what you get for dating somebody that is like by themselves out climbing big hills all the time. Just oblivious and not knowing what to say when there's an actual physical person in front of their face. <laughs> That night at the party, when Allison recounted their seemingly awful day, everyone had a real big laugh, including Aaron. Because that's what happens, right? A painful misadventure usually turns into a funny event with a little space, some perspective, and community. This is how Aaron and Allison went from these brutal first meetings to being happily married. And that perspective shift, Aaron says is something that the outdoors has taught her. My goal with my climbs was always to feel closer to people. And that's why I chose like expedition mountaineering, where it's, it's really a goal of being attached to a rope and being you know attached to your team and trusting your team. And, and when you're trans or different, it's hard to trust other people. Or when you've got something that's in your background that makes you feel unlovable, it's hard to trust other people. And, I think that as I grew and I found my ability to to get back on a rope team and and take risks and be vulnerable and trust other people, that probably contributed to the point at which Allison and I met and I was actually willing to trust somebody and uh, settle settle in and feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable and find humor and joy and and kind of these otherwise not very funny situations. Coming up after the break some more not very funny situations that helped a couple of daring people find exactly what they needed. The staple ingredients of a perfect summer are no secret. Sunshine, swimming, and backyard barbecues. The rest of it is just dressing on the side. So for the best summer, you need the best grill. And it doesn't get any better than Monument Grill's Denali 605 Pro. A premium six-burner smart gas grill that brings modern convenience to an age-old tradition. Crafted with stainless steel for durability, an infrared burner for faster, even heating, Bluetooth temperature monitoring, and a lid that lets you see what's going on on your grill without changing the temperature inside. It's a grill that's both sizzle and steak. Whether you're a seasoned grill master or just starting out, it's sure to impress. Your friends will be amazed by the Denali 605 Pro. Use code OUTSIDE45 for an exclusive discount and enjoy fast, free shipping. For sure, we could tell something was going on when we reached the takeout. So we pull up, we see the river, my friends are there, and we can't see any blue sky. It's covered with smoke. And there is, yeah, ash falling from the sky and like landing in the parking lot. So we're pretty certain this isn't just some type of brush burn. That is Leah McDowell talking about the start of a kayak adventure back in April of 2008 on the French Broad River just outside of Asheville, North Carolina. She was with a dude named Corey that she just met the night before at a Barack the Vote concert. They both were avid kayakers, so after chatting for a bit, they made plans to paddle the following day after work. Unbeknownst to them, a wildfire had broken out in the woods surrounding the French Broad. Even though both Corey and Leah were outdoor educators at the time, trained in risk management, and, you know, there was smoke in the air, they were undeterred. 
On our way there, the volunteer fire department house was empty, which probably should have been a sign, but we both were down for it. We felt really comfortable and confident with it, and we were excited to paddle. Okay. There's (laughs) smoke in the air. There is ash falling from the sky. There is a fire somewhere, but you're like, you know what? I'm going to shelve all those concerns because this dude who is new to me (laughs) is like smoking hot and I just want to kind of like see where this can go. Am I right here? Pretty sure you're absolutely accurate. We were like really wanting to get to know each other, wanting to spend time together. The sparks are flying between us, you sir. You know what I'm saying here? (laughs) Yeah, smoke and mirrors. We were uh, blinded by <laughs> blinded by the smoke. Excited. The smoke I mean, between the two of you. You didn't give a shit about the real smoke that was in the air. Well, we couldn't see any flames. So. <laughs> this is so good. This is so great. Less than a mile into their smoky river trip, Leah and Corey saw a group of canoers hiking their boats upstream. They were like shouting at us. They were like, get off the river. Get off the river. <laughs> They're like, you can't breathe. You can't breathe. Stop so looking they... doe-eyed into each other's eyes and get the <laughs> hell off the river. What are you doing? You're like, what? Huh? Sorry. <laughs> we're like, oh, really? There um, is a fire. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was still pretty easy at that point to get backup river. So we got back and we were like, wow, bummer. We're like, okay. And we figured we needed to like salvage this somehow or continue the night. Like this can't be it. And it it wasn't a bad experience, right? Some people would end up in a situation like this and be like, I never want to see you again. Like this was terrible. Lose my number. Bye. (laughs) You almost turned me into a s'more. I'm out of (laughs) here. Right. So (laughs) we're like, okay, well, Let's go downtown. Corey and Leah picked up her car at the takeout. It was covered in ash, but thankfully not burnt to a crisp. And they went out for a drink, which turned into dinner and a conversation that lasted until they were the last people in the restaurant. Learning about his family or my family, where we grew up, Mm. how we found Asheville, what we loved about Asheville, what we loved spending time doing, what we were doing for work, and we spent half the day together. Corey walked me back to my car, and we said goodnight, and then he leaned in for a kiss, and we had our first kiss. Was it a magical first kiss it was it was like in the dark and between our two cars with all of our kayak gear and it was really quiet where we were parked it we were in the middle of downtown but it just felt like the two of us i gotta tell you like i have done a lot of stupid shit in my life to smooch (laughs) a human on the mouth but i have never Almost turned myself into, like, a rotisserie chicken. <laughs> you guys might take the, 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 like, trophy for, like, what is the dumbest way you've gotten the greatest smooch ever? It, it was confirming, you know? It was like, yeah, this is happening. Like, I'm not wrong. He didn't just want to go boat. What could have easily been a disastrous first date or a summer fling with super hot kayaker guy grew into a deep meaningful connection. Lee and Corey were inseparable for the next two months. They kayaked, camped, hiked, wore clean clothes instead of soggy river gear, went out on the town, and started to fall in love. But it wasn't all happy outdoorsy. 
Leah and Corey both lost people close to them during the first few months of their relationship, and Leah says that supporting one another in grief was a proving ground for their feelings. It was more challenging than anything that we had experienced before, but we were really, really grateful to have each other through those experiences. We knew that we were there for each other. He provided me so much support and comfort, and I know I did the same for him, vice versa. Mm -hmm. I didn't date, and I hadn't been in a relationship for two years before meeting Corey. I was totally independent and totally happy with my life. Mm -hmm. I think we both came in to each other's lives at really good times when we had a lot of happiness to share with each other. And that definitely carried us through some of those hard, just life circumstances that occurred. My strongest relationships are with people that I spend time outside with. Our outcome for Corey and I only happened with our connection to kayaking and where we spent so much time in the first couple of weeks. In 2016, Leah and Corey were married and they had the reception on the banks of the French Broad River. For Leah, kayaking has served as a connector and confidence builder, giving her the courage to paddle towards something scary and move through it, both on the river and in life. Opening up your life and opening up your heart to somebody else is not something that I take lightly. There's a lot of vulnerability in opening up just like with kayaking. You've really got to step outside of your comfort zone and try something new. And approaching a new rapid or a new river, you get this feeling inside where you are nervous about it, but then also feel the reward on the other end of it. Like, cool, I survived. Or like, yeah, I nailed that. Those are both rewarding feelings on the other side of that risk-taking adventure. Trusting that, you know, even if I come out on the other side of this, upside down or backwards, I'm still going to be okay. I'm going to be able to recover from this. Building that resiliency every time we go down the river helps us realize that we can be resilient in other challenges that we take on with life. Pushing yourself beyond what you think you're capable of. Finding joy when shit really sucks. Perseverance. These are all characteristics of a great outdoor experience and a great relationship, and they are exactly the traits that Massimo Alpian had to call upon during an especially nerve-wracking adventure. It's about 100% humidity and an average de temperature of about 96 to 97 degrees. And I then had to, like, power walk. And if I keep it at this pace, it's... It's manageable, but I was still like, like sweating profusely. I moved from a, a sweat that was running down my back to clammy, cold, and a shirt that was completely drenched and now oh. like a mix of heat and wet. And it was just gross. A long trail run? An epic hike? Nope. Massimo was trying to get to a first date on time. It was a notably muggy summer in New York City back in 2006, but the heat wasn't entirely why Massimo was sweating. At the time, he was 23 years old, living at home with his folks after graduating from NYU and striking out with guys who thought his outdoorsiness was, quote, boring. Using, of all things, MySpace 
Massimo had connected with Brett, a perfectly coiffed, dashing man who loved the outdoors. A couple of glasses of liquid courage later, he settled himself into the date. Brett didn't notice how sweaty he was. The fireworks popped, and dinner turned into a makeout session in Washington Park. Funny enough, as we were like sitting there smooching and getting all like flirty, there were a whole bunch of rats running around us in the bushes behind us. And so it was like very New York in that way. I was going to say, this is the most New York like first date makeout session of all time. <laughs> yes. And then unlike a lot of guys I had met at the time, he sent me a text the next day and said, I had a really great time. I'd love to see you again. Massimo and Brett's connection deepened quickly during more city dates, but even more so during their city escapes. Just a few weeks after meeting, they traveled 130 miles north of New York to the small town of Phoenicia in the Catskill Mountains. Brett was excited to take Massimo mountain bike riding, but Massimo, who grew up in New York and is a diehard road cyclist, had never even sat on a mountain bike, let alone ridden one. Brett didn't know this. This guy just takes off within 60 seconds and drops me, and I don't can't even see him. And I started riding as fast as I could on this mountain bike that I didn't know how to ride. I, like, wiped out and completely ate shit over a rock. I just stood there over the bike and started, like, panicking and crying a little bit. Like, I had, like, oh, some no. tears coming because I was oh, like... No. I called out his name. I didn't hear him. I'm actually legit scared to keep riding this bike because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And then I was also like just sitting there. I'm like, like this guy is such an asshole. I was like, who just like takes off and doesn't make sure the person there, like they just met and are on a date, I guess like a ride date with, is with them. And then all of a sudden he like comes up back to me over the clearing. He's like, where were you? And I'm like, I was like, I don't know, where the fuck were you? I'm like, you just took off. So he's like, okay, why don't we go like really slow and just follow my wheel? And I was like, fine. Right. After that, he was really kind and inclusive. And I followed his wheel and he went really slow and we made lots of stops. But then we had like a lovely weekend after that. We went out, you know, we went out to dinner and like the restaurant in town. We went hiking the next day. So it was, it was really great. We really connected in the mountains, and it was fantastic. But Massimo wanted a little bit of payback. So when he and Brett got back to the city, he designed a road ride date. Start in Manhattan, bike over the George Washington Bridge to New Jersey, roll through the suburbs, and then pedal home. This time, Brett got completely crushed. Massimo says that these long rides led to better communication and quality time and an understanding and acceptance of the other's wants and needs. This helped immensely when their burgeoning relationship was put to the test just three months in, during one of the most difficult times in Massimo's life. I was closeted at the time, very closeted to my family, but not my friend group. And things got pretty intense in our relationship and my parents found out I was gay and found out about my relationship with Brett and I was outed without my control or consent to my entire family. They were extremely homophobic and I 
was thrown out of my home, my childhood home. They shut me out for six years and we missed out on a lot of each other's lives at that time. I also had to tell Brett, which the conversation never really came up. You know, we had conversations about each other's families, but I had kind of done this, like, don't ask, don't tell thing. And I think it was because I was embarrassed that I came from such a conservative family. But that led Brett to believe that I was out to my family more than he knew and that they were accepting. So I also had to deal with the trauma at the time of telling my boyfriend that I don't have a place to live. And then I called him and I was like in tears, like hyperventilating, like I don't know where to go or what to do. This is what happened. I'm sorry if I led you to believe something different, but this is my reality and I don't know where to go. And I have a suitcase packed. And he was like, grab your stuff and come to my apartment and you can stay with me until you figure out what you're doing. And a month went by and then two months went by and me moving in with him turned into this very like intense Love affair. Massimo says the following six years of his life were complicated and confusing. It was the first time he'd felt deep, real, intimate love from a significant other. And while that was happening, the complete disconnection from his family was heartbreaking. When Massimo turned 29 years old, he experienced what he describes as a late 20s crisis. He was hurt and angry at his family, and he started to wonder if his relationship with Brett had started too young too quickly. So he moved out, rented an apartment on the other side of New York, and bought a Kawasaki Ninja street motorcycle. Full-on crotch rocket, thought I was like this like badass bro. You know, I was like riding around like New York, like, you know full face helmet and like a leather jacket. Like I just like was such a dork. I know what I was thinking I was doing. (laughs) I was on my bike and like I got hit by a taxi one day, went flying off my bike and my bike went down like a half a city block, was like demolished. I was conscious, but like totally in shock and not didn't know what was going on. And I couldn't walk. Strangers rushed to help Massimo and get an ambulance. A woman asked him if there was anyone she should call. Massimo said, call Brett. Brett met me at the hospital, which shows the kind heart he has after I was a complete asshole to him and broke up with him for no reason. And, you know, they were doing MRIs and x-rays and trying to find out, like, if I was okay, if I broke a rib or whatever. And I was just laying in a, in, in a, in a stretcher and he was just like, you know, I need to call your mom or your dad and let them know what happened. And I was like, please don't. Like, we don't, I was like, we don't talk. Like, please don't call them. Please just leave it alone. He defied me and called her. She picked up and he told her what happened and she came. Wow. Yep, she came. Yeah, so um, she showed up. I don't know why or what inspired her to show up, but she showed up. 
after years of not talking, not seeing her, and also knowing that Brett was there. Massimo's injuries included a torn ACL, a torn MCL, a torn meniscus, and a number of fractures. Brett supported him through his recovery and his physical therapy. They became a couple again. And starting on that day in the ER, Massimo's family has opened themselves up to him again and accepted his relationship and Brett. When Massimo and Brett got married in 2014, his family was there. Today, Massimo says he still has challenges with his family, but that they've healed old wounds. He describes the relationship as great. He also told me that what helped him the most as he rebuilt his connections to Brett and his parents were the values he'd cultivated during his outdoor experiences, especially empathy. When we think of empathy as a value, it's always in relation to others, which I think is really important, but also empathy for yourself, right? There's been a lot of challenges. You know, I came across an outdoor adventure, like whether it was pushing past a long ride where I thought I was going to literally collapse or being dehydrated and and pushing past those boundaries psychologically and knowing they're going to be okay and tapping into my strength, into my confidence and self-talk of it, of being your own hype person, aided me in getting through a lot of those moments where I thought I couldn't do it. And as I learned more about myself and my relation to nature and the outdoors, that also helps me connect with others in that space. Every time you go out and adventure with someone you love, you learn a lot about them, but also about your relationship. And that in turn keeps your relationship strong and brings a lot of lessons that you can apply that last a lifetime. Hey, Patty, I, I need you to do something for me. Okay, what? Uh, can you do the credits? Please. Oh, sure. Really? Yeah. Why? Uh, okay. Honestly, I, I, I have to go. I'm busy. So oh, okay. all, all you enjoy. <laughs> okay. Go for it. You're good at this. Okay. Thanks. Cool. Uh, okay. Let's, uh, I'm going to give it a shot here. Um, like what you've heard? Want more wonderful outside love tales? Well, there are a bunch of great ones at OutsideOnline.com slash love stories. Okay, what's next? Uh, oh, this episode of the Outside Podcast was produced by me, Patty O'Connell. And it was edited by Mike Roberts. Or Michael Roberts? Michael Roberts. Music by Robbie Carver. Thanks, Robbie. Oh, and the Outside Podcast is made possible by our Outside Plus members. Learn more about all the benefits of membership at OutsideOnline.com slash pod plus. Also, we're offering new members a 25% discount. So just enter the code pod25 at checkout. Okay, that's... Yeah, that's it. That is it. I totally nailed that. Nailed it!